This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, March 29th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Telluride to study the impact of short-term rentals. Council members consider pay and benefits. Capital Conversation talks emergency notifications, gun regulation, and housing. And a mountain weather forecast. Telluride is looking to get more information when it comes to short-term rentals in the community. This is a study that we feel strongly um, needs to be uh, from a neutral source, a third party, and independent in nature. So we really can provide the community here uh, later this spring and early summer with with an independent view of uh, both the uh, positive uh, economic impacts of short-term rentals, uh, the uh, the impacts on housing, uh, policy uh, concepts and ideas, and uh, uh, fee structure uh, alternatives as, as well moving forward. That's Telluride Town Manager Scott Robson speaking at Telluride's Town Council meeting on Tuesday. The town of Telluride is working with Denver-based consulting firm Economic Planning Systems, or EPS, to conduct the study. It comes as Telluride's freeze on short-term rental licenses draws to a close. In 2021, Telluride voters passed Ballot Measure 2D that, in part, placed a two-year pause on the number of short-term rental licenses in the town so the community could gather more data on the impact of the rentals. That freeze is melting in November. Town Council could use the data from this study to determine next steps when it comes to regulating or not short-term rentals. The goal, according to Robson, is to get more information on how short-term rentals impact the economics, culture, and town services and operations. He says based on the data, the town could consider an impact fee. When you talk about an impact fee in this context, uh, first and foremost, EPS in this case would be coming up with what, what are those direct costs to the clerk's department? What are those direct costs to, to marshals and other departments um, based on STR activities out in the community? Are, is there software that we really are not covering our costs on that Tiffany and team need to buy? Are there X number of additional calls related to noise or trash violations uh, because of STRs that the marshals department needs to be held you know, kept whole around. That's the type of fee mitigation we're talking about. In the broader sense, he says, it's also looking at how short-term rentals impact housing in the community. When it comes to the scope of the study, council member Mian Fee wants to ensure it takes a full picture on where the local housing crisis comes from, including the presence of remote workers. I think that that's a really, really important component. We have really talked about short-term rentals as you know, in community conversation, that's been the focus when we talk about displaced workforce. And I don't know that we've paid enough attention to the remote work impact on our housing um, inventory. And so I'd really like us to be able to dig into that. So that, that way, I think with that information and data points to that, we'll actually really be able to accurately look at the short-term rentals and their impacts. And without that information, we're not going to be able to do so. Meanwhile, Councilmember Dan Enright wants to tap into the qualitative data in addition to the quantitative. Economic data is incredibly easy to capture, and it is all too easy to point and say, look at all the benefits from all the money we capture without the often more intangible impacts of community structure, neighborhood quality, uh, 
knowing one of your neighbors, which is a which is data sets that is in general much harder to quantify, and making sure that there isn't an over reliance solely on data from an economic mindset. EPS plans to begin work on the study immediately and will likely run through May. The firm plans to present the data to the public in a series of open houses to get feedback on the findings. Robson adds the town hopes to make any modifications to the town's short-term rental policy by early fall, prior to the sunset of the current cap. How do you go about giving someone a raise? Turns out there are a lot of options. First thing you do is align your compensation with the market leaders. Um, You could look at tying it to inflation. You could explore tying it to a percentage of the San Miguel County area median income. Or you can look to align with the budgeted staff salary increases that you all adopt in every budget. That's Director of Human Resources for the Town of Telluride, Julia Praise, speaking before town council this week. The options she's listing are all potential ways of determining pay increases for town council members, ranging from matching compensation levels to other mountain towns like Aspen, to basing pay and pay increases off the area's average income. But, Praise clarifies, whatever structure is adopted will not go into effect immediately. You are all not giving yourselves a raise. You are making decisions for future council people. You cannot give yourself a raise. So anybody coming onto council in this election and forward would be subject to this. So the implementation of this would be phased. Still, the optics of town council members considering additional compensation for their work can be complicated. Praise reminds council that compensating council members for their work is an issue of equity and opens a position to lower-income individuals. We want to make sure that we're incentivizing a diverse pool of future town council candidates. Um, And the piece that was brought up and that we're talking about today is providing the financial support to town council members to make this possible. Councilmember Adrian Christie agrees, even if the current council is socioeconomically diverse, further increasing that diversity remains a priority. I don't know how often it happens, but we have three people living in affordable housing on the board right now on our council. I think that that's great. And a renter. So I think that's lovely. But I think the other elements of diversity that we're trying to get to are people of a low, even less socioeconomic level than the people at this table right now. Telluride council members currently make roughly $15,000 a year, and the mayor receives around $23,300. They also receive health insurance and a ski pass through the town. During the meeting, it was noted Telluride's compensation is competitive with other Colorado ski towns, but still well below Aspen, which pays council members over $30,000 a year and pays its mayor nearly $40,000. Councilmember Dan Enright says the issue of how other towns compare matters less to him. Instead, what stands out is how prohibitive the current level of pay can be for lower-income individuals interested in serving on council. Not everybody has quite as much flexibility working another full-time job, which is essentially what's required uh, with the pay based off of our median income to just pay your bills while still residing in the town limits of the town of Telluride. And I think that that cumulatively pushes me towards a much higher rate of compensation. Although fair compensation is important, town council is not a traditional job, counters council member Mian Fee. I do believe that there is a volunteer component to what we're doing. I think we should maybe like 
do a little less for council than we do for staff, if that makes sense. Following much discussion, town manager Scott Robson reminds council of the end goal. Council should aim to create a clear structure for compensation with room for future increases, he says. And just, again, take this out of the political discussion, make it administrative and and find a formula that, that works. Council decides going forward to base compensation on the area median income for part-time workers in San Miguel County and create a structure to increase that wage along a similar timeline as town staff. The specifics of the formula, including exactly what the baseline pay will be, will be determined at a spring town council meeting. Gun regulation is moving closer to Governor Jared Polis's desk. In this installment of Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady Woods shares the latest on that, along with emergency notifications and housing. Hey, Lucas, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Thanks for having me. So, I first wanted to touch in. This is uh, maybe a smaller bill that folks maybe not uh, haven't been paying as close attention to, um, but a really important one, I think, that looks at emergency notification systems and, and the languages that it comes in. Can you share a little bit about what this bill is and then um, where it is in the legislative process? Like you said, it is an important bill. And there are, you know, it's kind of one of those bills that does fly under the radar a little bit. This one would mandate that emergency alerts and actually 911 calls as well are available uh, to to people in another language other than English. The first thing that this bill does is require the Department of Public Safety to conduct a study about communities uh, and the different languages other than English that they speak. So after the study, which will be presented next legislative session, communities that have certain threshold of non-English speakers would have different requirements for what language they need to provide these emergency services in. Um, And it wouldn't go into effect until 2026. So it's going to be a little while before this rolls out. But, you know, it's all about accessibility. It has bipartisan support. um, And and it passed committee and is is moving forward. So I I think it has a pretty good chance of, of getting through the legislature this year. I just wanted to chat with you. Obviously, um, across the country, we've had um, another mass shooting at, at a school. And in Colorado, lawmakers are pushing forward with more gun regulation. Can you share where this package of bills currently stands? And also, I mean, I would I would be curious to hear if, if the events of this week have, um, if you've heard any of that in the Capitol as these bills are being discussed. Oh, yeah, that that is a big topic of discussion around here. The gun bills, four of them are there. There are five total. Four of them are are pretty much through the legislature. There's some amendments that have been put together, and those have to be approved by either the House or the Senate. But that's a pretty quick process. You know, I could be wrong on this, but I think they may be signed into law in the next few weeks. And what would those bills do? These would be a bill that increases the minimum purchasing age for guns to 21. A bill that imposes a three-day waiting period on gun purchases, a bill that would expand the red flag laws, or also called extreme risk protection orders here in Colorado, um, and that would expand them by allowing teachers, doctors, and mental health professionals to petition to have someone's guns removed if they pose a threat to themselves or others. Um, The fourth 
would make it easier for victims of gun violence to sue gun stores and manufacturers. Of course, you know, this comes in light of some pretty horrific events. You know, we saw a shooting in Nashville, but we also had a shooting here recently at Denver's East High School where a student unfortunately shot and wounded two adult staff members and then himself ending his own life. Um, and that's actually the second shooting in and around East High School in the last couple of months. And students there are, are, I think, safe to say, outraged and afraid. And they staged a sit-in here at the Capitol last week for the second time this month and really demanded that lawmakers pass these four bills. Um, and Democrats promised they would. Now, the fifth one that I didn't mention is the assault weapons ban. That has a less clear path through the legislature. It doesn't have as much support. Some of the people that support an assault weapons ban don't necessarily know if a state-level ban is going to be effective and have called on a federal ban, which, as many of us know, is very unlikely. Right, yeah. Finally, you mentioned a brief housing, or you mentioned briefly a housing bill that is coming up. What is that one looking at? Yeah, so I can say it is definitely not brief. It is one of the longest bills that I have seen. It is 105 pages long. Uh, bills generally are just a few pages, um, but this one is extremely long. And this was announced by Governor Polis and Democratic lawmakers last week. And it focuses on land use codes and, and land use reform. And essentially, you know, to, oh, to simplify it, which is uh, no easy task, it would mandate different requirements for big cities, small towns, resort towns, but they all revolve around increasing housing density in residential areas. You know, so, so big cities would actually be required to allow duplexes, triplexes, and, you know, even more up to six unit, uh, multi-unit uh, buildings in all residential areas and near transit. So, you know, these, these neighborhoods here in Denver and the surrounding areas that are zoned for single-family homes would now be zoned for much more than that. And, you know, as, as these municipalities get smaller, they have different requirements. So resort towns and small towns wouldn't have to allow for triplexes or duplexes or six-unit buildings. There would be required to allow for accessory dwelling units or ADUs and, and housing add-ons and things like that. You know, that is, that is a oversimplification of this bill, but but again, it, it's it's really the most sweeping land use reform in the state in, in at least a decade. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat um, with some really big issues going through the legislature, and we'll talk with you soon. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm here monitoring them, and, you know, as always, thanks for having me. That was KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reporting from Denver. The town of Telluride is considering going to voters in November to potentially help fund some major projects down the line. There is certainly a significant uh, need out in front of the, the town of Telluride in, the, uh, in that five to ten year uh, window um, to really build a, a greater funding pool around critical infrastructure needs. That's Telluride town manager Scott Robson. And, and when I say critical infrastructure, we really are looking at what is the total cost and need related to our wastewater treatment plant, water infrastructure, street and accessibility improvements, uh, our historic 
uh, structures such as the museum, town hall, and even uh, current and potentially future uh, childcare uh, facilities. To get a sense on what type of ballot measure the electorate might be comfortable with, the town is working with Magellan Strategies to conduct a survey of voters. Robson says the town will survey voters through text messages to gauge support of a potential ballot initiative. He plans to bring questions to town council in April and gather information before the November 2023 election. The San Blas Islands is an archipelago of some 350 islands off the north coast of Panama. What relevance might the bright white sand beaches have to snow-covered Telluride? Silk painting! This Thursday, March 30th, the Telluride Library and the AHA School are teaming up to offer an introductory workshop on painting silk in the tradition of the Kuna women of the San Blas Archipelago. The Kuna practice pulls on geometric designs, vibrant colors, and a flowing watercolor technique. The workshop will introduce participants to the basics of silk painting and is open to all skill levels. The two-hour introductory class starts at 5.30 p.m. on Thursday at the AHA School and will be co-conducted in both English and Spanish. Registration is available at telluridelibrary.org. Snowpack in the upper Colorado River Basin has reached a record high for late March. That's thanks to a wet winter in the mountains. Snow totals are the highest they've been this time of year since records started nearly four decades ago. The Colorado River gets the majority of its water from high-altitude snow. Spring melt could bring a substantial boost to Lake Powell, the nation's second-largest reservoir. Client scientists caution that one strong year won't completely fix the region's supply-demand imbalance. Runoff could lift some pressure off of water managers in the short term. They're due to come up with a new set of rules for the river before 2026. After Colorado voters approved a measure to provide free school lunches to all students in the state, school districts in Colorado are preparing. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF's Cassie Knust reports. For two years, families didn't pay out of pocket for school meals. Since the pandemic began in March 2020, Students ate at no cost to their families after the federal government funded a universal free meals program for students. That funding ended this past September, once again leaving several families with a tab for breakfast and lunch. And while over half of Coloradans voted to implement a universal school meal program for students, a program that over half of Montrose County opposed, that program won't take effect until the 2024-2025 school year. I don't think it takes a PhD to understand the fact that when, when our basic needs aren't met, we're going to be less successful. Montrose County School District Public Information Officer Matt Jenkins says that in order for students to succeed, they also need a healthy diet. As a society, as a community, uh, you can draw a straight line to improved outcomes uh, with better nutrition. When a kid's hungry, you know, that kid's not going to learn as well. That kid's not going to be as fully functional. And there'll be other problems that are going to be connected to that lack of nutrition. And so, you know, regardless if you have kids, if you have grandkids, if you have nieces or nephews, we're better as a community when our kids aren't hungry. Montrose County School District is one district that provided free meals to students during the pandemic's initial years. 
And according to Preston Weaver, MCSD's nutrition general manager, the district saw growth across all meals served since the pandemic began. Weaver noted that elementary school students saw a smaller decrease in meal participation compared to high school students. I would probably say there's maybe a 10% loss this year over last year. High schools, yes, there's been a substantial drop in terms of students eating through the cafeteria, but there's still a decent amount. And Montrose schools aren't alone. According to a survey released in January by the School Nutrition Association, fewer students were eating meals in their school cafeterias last October compared to October 2021. Last October was the first month that lunches weren't federally funded. And while the district returns to what Weaver calls normal operations, there have been some hiccups along the way. There's still a lot of hiccups with parents coming from two and a half years, not understanding that we are back to normal operations in terms of if you're a paid student, you need to have money in your accounts, you need to make sure that you're paying for lunches. Reporting for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Cassie Knust. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clouds tonight with a low near 30 and wind gusts as high as 40 miles per hour. Thursday calls for snow showers in the afternoon with a high near 35 degrees and wind gusting up to 50 miles per hour. Thursday night calls for continued snow with a low near 15 degrees and wind gusts reaching 35. Friday should see snow taper off with a high near 30 degrees and Friday night should be partly cloudy with a low near 15. This has been the news for Wednesday, March 29th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Did you know that if your child is attending a preschool or child care center in San Miguel County at any point of the 2023-24 school year and has yet to enter kindergarten, you may be eligible for a tuition reduction? Hi, I'm Kathy with Bright Future's Strong Start program, reminding you that in 2017, San Miguel County passed a mill levy to support and elevate early childhood education. This includes helping families cover the cost of childcare tuition. We know that raising a family is expensive. In the last four years, Strong Start has assisted over 200 families by contributing over $540,000 in tuition assistance. Over 90% of applicants receive funding to assist with childcare tuition. If you are interested in applying for Strong Start's Child Care Tuition Assistance Program, please visit our website at strongstartstrongcommunity.org. The deadline to register is March 31st, just a few days away, so please help us spread the word. Again, that's strongstartstrongcommunity.org to register. Tell your friends. And thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.